Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 4th, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. And today's sermon, A Social Test of Love, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small. I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. I do have to tell you that this, over the last couple of weeks in studying John, 1 John 3, 11 through 18, uh, has been a trip for myself to the woodshed. And uh, um, uh, I didn't even pick out my own switch. But... Man, I've been beaten up the last couple of weeks. And so I want to try and encourage you as we go through John's Word. We're dedicated to teaching God's Word, word for word, uh, you know, uh, verse by verse. And uh, for some of you, you may have the propensity to want to walk away discouraged today. Um, but I want you to know this. When I stand up here and preach, and this is not just this Sunday, but it's every Sunday that I do stand up here and preach. I'm really preaching to me. You just happen to be here. And right, and so um, a lot of what you'll hear today is my own conscience and my own convictions of John's very uh, tender, very deep, but also very blunt words that he has to share with us. So um, hang on tight, because there will be probably a little bit of passion. So I have a great zeal for God's word and really the study of God, theology. Um, I'm often asked the question if I have any hobbies, and I usually sit there kind of awkwardly and say no, right? But my hobby is the study of God. That is what I most enjoy uh, to do. And so today, as we look at God's theology and, and understand who our God is, um, I can't help but say that I love His Word, even when His Word corrects me or disciplines me. Um, I want to remind you that last week, uh, Pastor Bob talked about First uh, John, and uh, he closing verse in that was First uh, John three ten. If you want to follow along, it says, "By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God." nor is the one who does not love his brother. The segue, the love of his brother. We leave uh, 1 John 3 and this test that he had of obedience or righteousness. And we talked about the practice of righteousness versus the practice of sinning. And so I want to remind you of that context because he segues now into another test. And the test that he's talking to about is a social test of love. And he says, as he closes 10, to love his brother. So John is continuing his very stark contrast between the children of God 
and the children of the devil. He writes of hatred and love, life and death, murder and self-sacrifice. And after reminding his readers, his audience back then, that the duty of reciprocal love, this love that comes back and forth, is the original message that we have heard from the very beginning. The first part of the paragraph concerns us with the hatred of Cain. And I want you to see Cain as a prototype of the world, the world system. Well, the second part of this will describe the love of Christ. And it's this love of Christ which should also be seen throughout the church. And I want to remind you that the church is you and me. A church is a society of true believers, not a building. And so there should be the mark of love within the church. But the words of John, we're going to see even though he's in his 90s and he's a very tender-hearted pastor. I want you to see that, but I also want to remind you that John was whom they referred to as one of the sons of thunder. And so the words that he's going to give us today create a very stark contrast in the form of a test. Let me just pray for us on that. Our Father and our God, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for inspiring the Apostle John with these words. I pray, Lord, that not only would uh, all of our hearts be encouraged, but, Lord, we would be compelled, compelled by your gospel to share the love of Christ with everyone around us. And may we grow in this grace and in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to start by talking about a, an illustration, a story. And uh, this story, I would call, is, is uh, based on a true story. And by true story, I mean a Hollywood true story. So it's really, it's just fictional, okay? So there's no, I'm going to do my best to stay. There is an original story of it, but I am going to embellish the facts and not let the facts get in the way of a good story, okay? So this story entails two particular seminary students. And these students were under high instructions from their professors for their final exam, their test. And their test was simple. They have to come to a panel of four of the theologians within the seminary on a Saturday, of all things, and they're going to have to actually preach on 1 John 3, 11 through 18, the very text we're going to look at today. They gave them strict rules. It would one be on a Saturday, therefore the church is closed, there's not a lot of people around. But they're also given these weird instructions. Student number one, was told that next Saturday at exactly 1 p.m., you will preach this sermon on this text to these four theologians. Come prepared. They were also told that they had to be there at exactly 1 p.m., and the student number two had to be there exactly at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. And they were told that if you came any earlier, you would be given a demerit and your grade would be discounted. They're also told that if you're even one minute late, you fail. And everything is on the line in this test. 
This will determine whether we give you your masters of divinity and we set you free to go and proclaim the truth of the gospel and you preach and you serve a congregation with the word of God in the power of Jesus Christ. One minute late, you fail. As I'm prone to do, don't, I want to remind you, please don't let me forget to tell you the end of that story. But, <laughs> but I want to tear apart right, this passage, 1 John 3, 11 through 18. Let me read it first. I believe it's on the, on the screen. But for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding or continuing in him. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, the last phrase of the previous section prepared us for this transition from the test of righteousness, the practicing of righteousness, to the social test of loving one another. In verse 11, just taking it verse by verse, it says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. He's establishing here an ethic. This is how we ought to live. This is, this is the ought of our existence. So my point number one is this, the duty of reciprocal love, to get love in return, is the original message of God. The message has always, in fact, been the same. The Greek word angelia, which is the message, the word message here, is pointing to a meaning of a message, a doctrine, a precept. It's delivered in the name of any one command that God has given us. The message is the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of God is simple. For this is the doctrine of God that you have heard from the very beginning, since the beginning of time, that we should love one another. The word love here is the word agapeo. It's a form of God's love in action. It's the active love of God. It says that it's the active love of God not only for his son and his people, and the active love of his people, this is the reciprocal part of it, are to have for God, not only for God, but for each other, and this is important, and even for our enemies. What God is saying in this reciprocal relationship is that we love because he first loved us. 
And this agapeo, this action of our love, is not only our love of God, love of Christ, but it's our love for one another, and it's also love for people who are of the world. For God himself so loved the world. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give you, that, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are, the lo- are to love one another. Or we see it in 1 John 2, 24, that we've already done, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you or continues in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Or 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. There's nothing new here to see. But an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. What he's doing is he's expounding this ethical rather than this doctrinal truth. But his appeal is the same. The gospel itself does not change. The truth about the person of Jesus Christ and about Christian conduct cannot be altered. This is the calling of a Christian in both doctrine and in ethic of how we ought to live. We've got to go right back to the beginning and inquire what the apostles originally taught their very first converts. And I can tell you that the essential part of that message, that doctrine, was that we should love one another. Over and over, love one another, love one another. I can even ask the question, I'll take a poll here, right? By a show of hands, how many of you know that as a Christian, your calling is to love one another? Well, man, it's almost universal. It's incredible. So the question that we have to start asking is, why are we not doing it? Here's what John tells us, verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Point two, the hatred of Cain as the prototype of the world. Cain's hatred is a prototype of the world. Let me show you how. In Genesis 4, 1 through 8, it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, the good parts. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it or master it. How many of you know that sin is crouching at your door and it desires you? 
and you must master it. You must be in charge of this. We see our personal responsibility here. And then in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You see, the story doesn't tell us explicitly why Abel's sacrifice from his flock was acceptable to God. While Cain's offering of the fruit of the soil was simply not. What's implied is that Cain had no ground for his complaint, as we see in verse 6, where he says, If he had done what was right, his sacrifice also would have been accepted. Just an opinion about this. Years ago, I uh, had the privilege of playing on the national water polo team. And I had this coach, Monty Niskowski. He was a Hungarian coach. And so you know he was warm with comedic value and great love. (laughs) And he would always tell us, you know, we would win a game and he would say, okay, we need to prepare for the next game. But we won, coach. Yes, you executed well today. And it's, it's like, oh, God, I can just feel the I love you in that. And, you're, and you're, you're sitting there kind of bewildered by this whole thing, waiting for some sort of compliment, waiting for something in particular in return. And what Monty was trying to get across to us was simple. Our job is not to sit around waiting for praise. Our job is to execute that which he has commanded us to do. You see, even in the middle of a game, I remember we were, we were playing this game and the ball came in and I found myself four meters away from the goal all by myself. And I turned and I shot and I scored. Monty called timeout, pulled me out, literally cussed me out in front of the entire stands, sent me over to the other pool and said, 10,000 yards butterfly because of your willful disobedience. Monty told me over and over again, and the entire team, I'm the coach. I win games, I lose games, you execute. Over and over again. Even if you scored a goal, even if you won the game but executed poorly, Monty would tell you. You see, the call of God in our life is for us to execute that which he's commanded us to do. But we have a tendency to bring things after the fact with the intent of receiving something in return. What he's talking about here is sacrifice. Are we presenting things in sacrifice? Right? Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He still speaks today. You see, it's not about the amount that you give. It's about the equality of the sacrifice. The rich man can walk in and write an enormous check But the widow in her might gives everything. And I'm not talking about finances. This isn't a message on stewardship of your finances. This is a message about your stewardship with the love of Christ. Do you write that check? 
You see, this last couple of weeks, I've been realizing every time I walk away from a situation that I failed to love that person the way that Christ loves me. And I've walked like the rich young ruler, ashamed at my own actions. You see, by faith, Abel believed. Obedience. Cain himself willfully disobeyed. Jude 11 says, Woe to them, for they walked in a way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. To Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion, right? Abel exemplified the violent hatred which righteousness always provokes in unrighteousness. The greatest compliment you can be given as a Christian is from the world telling you, I hate you. This is the highest praise you can receive. If you're looking for something different, then you're looking for your own gain. John 3, 19 through 20 says, and this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If we had an event here where everyone was required to bring their sofa to church and we were going to put it out in the parking lot with the bright sun of the afternoon, and we put your name on this sofa, and everyone got to see just how in the light, how filthy your sofa is. You would be standing nervously over the thing, trying to get your name off of the thing, right? But we put our name every day out there on filth. This is what John's telling us. He says in verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. See, Cain was the prototype of the world. The world is Cain's posterity. So we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us. It's only natural that the world would treat the righteous as Cain did his brother Abel. If they're wanting to get a rope and kill you, if they want to martyr you for the sake of your relationship with Jesus Christ, blessed are the persecuted for my name's sake. The thing that makes us better is that we are in stark contrast to the rest of the world. And what they're seeing in you is not what check you wrote or how many Bible studies you attend, but how much sacrifice of your desire are you going to give? This is a polite way of saying it's time to get up off your rear end and do something. We walk past it every day. We see nations that are filled with such poverty and we do nothing. Nothing in comparison to what we could do. Sure, we write a check, but maybe not without sacrifice. Sure, we show up and do a short-term mission, but not really without sacrifice. The issue is sacrifice. John 15, 18 and 19 tells us specifically, Jesus warned us, if the world hates you, 
Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brothers and sisters, examine your lives. Does the world love you? Because if you're walking away saying, man, I don't feel any of this hatred, then I'm just going to say it bluntly, then the faith of God is not in you. Because that's what John's saying. John 17, 14 says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, it's by hatred. The world is simply giving you evidence of its true spiritual condition, which is death, as we found it in 1 John 3, 14. Verse 14 tells us we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know this? Because we love the brothers. The word brothers there is written in the plural because it means both men and women. It means brothers and sisters. So rather than say brothers and sisters, they just pluralize the word. So we love the brothers, brothers and sisters. And he says these words, whoever does not love abides or continues in death. Man, I was taken to the woodshed with this. You see, point three, the love of Christ should be seen in the church. The love of Christ should be seen in the church. He says we have passed out of death into life. The word um, thanatos there, death, means the extinction of life. You see, if you're dead in your trespasses, if you're dead in your faith, if it doesn't produce a faith with works, and it's a dead faith, then what he's saying is you are extinct. You're meaningless. The Greek word here, zoe, for life, is the physical or spiritual in this case. It means eternal life. You have an abiding life with Christ. This is what he was talking about in the earlier verses of the practicing of righteousness versus the practicing of sin. Whoever does not love abides in death. And that love, agapeo, means not only of God and each other, but our enemies, those people of the world. John writes first of the evidence of love, what it is, and what it is, is it's namely self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice, whether in Christ or in people. This is your process of sanctification, not your justification. You're not saved by these works. These works are made manifest in you because you've already been saved. Remember, you have been saved by God's grace through works or through faith, not of works should any man boast, but it's the free gift of God. The key word there is the word been. To recognize that you're saved means that you've already been saved. Therefore, it should be compelling works within you that reveal that you are a light unto this world. You're a little Christ. 
Verse 15, the test. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John gives this proof point. The lack of love is evidence of spiritual death. It's not to say that the murderer can't be forgiven. He or she can. It's not to say um, that, that there's not only no forgiveness, but it's saying that it's a general principle. Look at the same general principle, the idea, the concept of this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said that those, to those of old, you shall not murder, quoting the Mosaic law, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell, to the hell of fire. I've done all three of these this week. Matthew 5, 27 through 28 says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Here's the principle again. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Thank God that we are practicing righteousness not required of perfection. Do you realize the grace and the mercy and the love and the kindness that Christ has put upon you, that he stands before you, as John has already told us, as your advocate, pleading to God the Father, I bought that one. I bought that one. I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I made my perfect righteousness manifest on them because they have believed in me, because I chose them before the very foundation of the world. So how do we recognize these people? Verse 16, we see another ethic. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought, oh, hey, tell them I said hi. (laughs) You want me to answer it? Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So here's the test, right? Here's here's, Here's what he's telling us, right, in the test. In verse, in verse 16, he's going to say, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, brothers and sisters. You see, this is an ethic. It's how things ought to be. It's not a morality. The morality is what it is, ought and is. Ethic, we live in a world that is trying to vastly take control of it through moral majority. And the moral majority is trying to alter and change the ethic. But the reality is that God's truth is the ethic. And how you compare and contrast to the truth is what it is. Here's what it looks like. This is how we know a person of the church, a person of Christ. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. That's the, that's the example. And we ought, by our own ethic, to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. That love, agapeo, not only of God and the people on your left and your right, but for your enemies as well. Are you doing that? 
John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Philippians 2, 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Look at verse 17, the test. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? True love is revealed not only in the supreme sacrifice of Christ, it's also expressed in the lesser givings. James 2, 15 through 16 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Or Deuteronomy 15, 7, which says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Are we doing this? How much do we walk past people just to get to a Bible study that are in need of something? 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Are we doing this? Brothers and sisters, Here's my conviction, here's my conscience. Do you know how many times I walk past someone who's clearly in need and do nothing? All the time. I'm ashamed. I've brought my sofa into the light and I've shown the world how filthy it is. Listen to John in verse 18, this 90-year-old man, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. John's final plea in this section is his most powerful to us all. Little children, a reminder, right? Remember the story I started with the two seminary students? The student number one was brilliant with God's word. And as he approached his time to enter in the chapel to preach this sermon, he got to the door. He's noticing that the campus is empty because it's a Saturday. He's showing up not early, but he's right on time. And as he grabbed the handle of the door, he hears off behind him a bicycle crash. And as he turns and he looks, there's a man writhing and praying. He's wearing a backpack. He's writhing back and forth, and he's in complete agony. And of course, the student number one pulls the door and then says, Huh. And he goes in and he delivers his sermon. Student number two shows up at 3 p.m. right on the dot. And as he's getting ready to walk in the door, he grabs the door handle to the chapel and he hears a bike crash behind him. 
And he turns and he sees a man writhing in pain. He immediately looks at his watch and he says, huh. And he closes his door and he goes and helps the man. Which one are you? Are you student one or student two? Because student one received an F. Student two is magna cum laude. You're going to go and preach on 1 John 3, 11 through 18 and ignore a man writhing in pain to get there and do it? The call of us is to be doers of God's word. This isn't about us memorizing God's word, although that's important so that you can hide it in your heart and not sin. But the call of the Christian is that you have to stop walking past it. You should read the prayer requests of our student ministry. You should read and talk to someone who's living alone in a convalescent home and has no family to come visit them. Brothers and sisters, I am ashamed of the fact that we will spend more time learning God's word than doing God's word. After all that is said and done, there will be a lot more said than actually done. The call of God's word is that we stand before holy God and not recite to him what you memorized, but that you show him that you implemented his word. It's about the execution. And it's not about you getting praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, how wonderful it will be to hear those words. But your motivation is the love of Christ. It is to preach Christ. It is to be an example and a model of Christ. It is to sacrifice your life for Christ. It is like the rich young ruler. Give everything you have to the poor and follow Jesus Christ. There is no other purpose in this world than Jesus Christ. Do I hear an amen? This is the call of a Christian. The call of the Christian is to be a doer of God's word, not simply a hearer. How are you going to bridge the gap that exists between what you knew when you raised your hands when I asked you how many of you know that your job is to love your brothers? Stop leaving the gap. Give your life to Christ. Follow Christ by modeling Christ. Which student are you? I love theology, the study of God. But without action, it's meaningless. My parting questions to you is this. Do you want to radically influence the world for Christ and his kingdom? then love the world with personal sacrifice. Give everything you have to the poor and follow Christ. Don't walk past the problems of sacrifice, but sacrifice your personal desires and goals. Do you want to have a blessed life? Then love people with sacrifice. Love your brothers and sisters as one body. I can't cut off the hand because we're brothers and sisters. Present yourself as a living sacrifice by serving the body, 100% of the body. I'm going to be honest with you. 
I see the same 20% serving. And I'm calling you as a pastor of this church. I'm begging you. The goal is 100% of the body serving 100% of the body. It's time for equal sacrifice. It's not about your check, you write. It's about sacrificing your desires. Forget about the awkward stares with the homeless person at the intersection. Get out of your car and ask him, how can I love you with the gospel? What can I give of myself so that you who are in need would need no more? And when they cuss you out and send you away, praise God. Praise God because you have just revealed a hater of the world. But you have faithfully obeyed the command of God. Be that person. Let us take our zeal for God's word and become zealots for God's glory. It's all about him. Don't look further than your own kids. Mom and dad, you're providing them with these wonderful gated communities. You're practically wrapping them in bubble wrap. You're exasperating the snot out of them, I gotta tell you. (laughs) Give them the model of Christ. Show them Christ in your home so that you're not in my office receiving counseling, wondering why did your college student abandon their faith? Because they didn't have faith. They never were modeled faith. The stories we've taught them since children's ministries didn't appear at home because they never saw the sacrifice. Show them the sacrifice. Give them the love of Christ and set them free. Trust in the law, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship and adore you. I'm so humbled by your word, by your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive me for when I have not been faithful. But Lord, as you give me an opportunity to love and minister to people, I pray that I would be faithful, that I would die to myself, and I would rejoice in the work and the wonderment of what you do. Below, Lord, please find me in this place in obedience. A message from the very beginning to love one another. Brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how much I love you. I pray that you would take advantage of this church body, that you'd come in and you'd meet face to face with your pastors and let us serve you, let us minister to you. Let us pour out our very lives unto you. Be discipled by someone, grow in your faith, but do not lose sight of your responsibility to do, to be a model of Jesus Christ. We have some men and women that will be here after the service to pray with you. If you need prayer, if there's a burden, come and pray. Lay that burden at the foot of the cross and Jesus Christ promises you he will give you rest. If you're coming to a place of faith and say, I want to know this Jesus that he just talked about, would you come and pray with one of our prayer warriors? 
If you've been coming here for a thousand years and you want to know more about this church, would you go and register at Info Central and come tonight to Heartbeat and get to know your pastors and their wives? Hear my heart on this. Let's stop walking past everything and let's start doing God's word. Amen? Now may the God who created us, may the God who shed his light upon us, the one who has saved us and pulled us out of this mess and entrusted us with the power of his Holy Spirit, may we go forward and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that he has commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I love you guys. Have a great week. Yeah,